Then, Nickelodeon brings you video comics. Characters come to life in a format that encourages children to read along. Hello, and welcome to FW Presents, the anthology show for the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and I am find you're overjoyed to present this very special episode, which is an interview with director-producer Dana Cadison. Some of you are no doubt wondering, who is Dana Cadison? Dana Cadison, well, was the producer and director and, to use a more modern TV term, showrunner of Nickelodeon's video comics show. A lot of you are now wondering, what's video comics? Well, for anyone who's been listening to the Fire and Water podcast for the past few years, you've heard me talk about video comics, which is a TV show that ran from 1979 to 1981 on the Nickelodeon cable channel. When my family first got cable around 1980, I watched a lot of Nickelodeon since it was one of the first TV channels with programming uh, aimed directly at me. Video Comics was this amazing show that featured classic DC comics from the 1960s and 1970s where the camera would follow a story, panel by panel, and the dialogue and sound effects were read out loud and performed by actors. As a kid who rarely saw comic books in any other medium, this show was a revelation. There was no uh, strange live-action or animated adaptations or changes to endure. These were the comics I loved delivered straight to TV. I ate the show up, and I watched every episode I could. Not only was it a treat for a diehard comic book fan like myself, but it was also instructive introducing me to characters that I had rarely, or in some cases never, seen before. Video Comics was the show that introduced me to old DC concepts like Ultra the Multi-Alien and Sugar and Spike, characters that didn't appear in current comics of the day. It really opened up the world of DC for me in the most entertaining manner possible. The comics, with their eye-popping color, really jumped off the screen, and of course, these books featured the work of some of the greatest comic book artists of all time, like Carmen Infantino, Sheldon Mayer, Dick Dillon, and Bernie Wrightson. As if that wasn't enough, the show encouraged my nascent love of reading. I would get to hear words pronounced I had never heard aloud before, learning how to say them and what they meant in context. As I have mentioned on other podcasts, if Batman used a word or phrase I didn't understand, I always attempted to look it up, because if Batman had said it, it must be important. So video comics turbocharged my development when it came to writing, reading, and spelling, which helped propel me in those disciplines as I grew up and made my way through school. But then the show just disappeared, and as I grew older, I basically forgot about it. Once in a blue moon, I would vaguely recall it, but this was pre-internet, so I had no way of verifying those memories. As you get older, childhood memories get more hazy, and while I knew I wasn't making the show up, the memories of it were very dim. Then, when the internet arrived, I tried to do some research on it, which was next to impossible. I did see that the show was real, thanks to an official listing on IMDb, but there was basically no other info on it other than that. I was heartened that when I finally mentioned the show on a Fire and Water podcast, a few listeners got back to me and they said they remembered it too. I was so glad to know I wasn't the only one who watched it and remembered it so fondly. Eventually, I saw that some industrious fan even uploaded a whole episode of Video Comics to YouTube, a Swamp Thing show, which you can watch right now. There's also the show's intro theme, which featured kids riding their bikes to the corner newsstand to buy comics to the tune of Ride of the Valkyries. Seeing that intro brought the memories of this delightful show flooding back, though I did wonder why, considering how much material had to be out there, that so little video comics has so far made it onto the internet. I tried to do some more research on the show, but I could never come up with anything until my pal and nuclear sub, Chuck Coletta, sent me a link to the website of Dana Cadison, who, on her online resume, listed herself as director-producer Nickelodeon's video comics. What? I couldn't believe it. So I reached out to Dana, not expecting a response, because, after all, here is some stranger asking her about a show she worked on almost 40 years ago, and she's done so much since. 
But to my delight, she got back to me and was happy to hear that someone remembered video comics so fondly. Naturally, I asked Dana if she would be interested in talking with me about video comics for a podcast, and she agreed. As you all know, I have been lucky enough to meet and talk to some pretty amazing people for my podcast. Actors, writers, directors whose work means the world to me. But I will say, I don't think I've had a more rewarding experience than I had talking to Dana and getting to tell her how much I loved video and comics and how much it improved my life. It was a true delight, and I thank her for her generosity of time and spirit. But before we get to the interview, I do need to thank again Chuck Coletta for the lead. None of this would have happened without him and his keen Batman-like detective skills. So now, please enjoy this conversation I had with the director and producer of Nickelodeon's video comics, Dana Cattison. Reintroducing... Hawkman, the winged detective. In his real identity, he's Katar Hole, a lawman from the distant planet Thanagar, who was rocketed to Earth to study our police methods. In his cover identity, he is Carter Hall, curator of the Midway City Museum. Ever since he came to Earth, Hawkman has chosen to battle lawbreakers of the present with weapons of the past. All right, so so Dana, explain to everybody and and to me. I'm I'm dying to. I have so many questions to ask you. Uh, <laughs> like, how did the show? Like, how did video comics even come about? How did it all get started? Well, it was part of a business plan, and I know nobody can believe it now, but there was a time when cable television was not in cities except New York, like New York. It was mostly. Uh, in rural areas, it, it actually started, the legend is that the first cable system was in Armstrong County, Pennsylvania, because a guy who had an appliance store wanted to sell TVs, and you couldn't get any signal. So he set an antenna up on a, on a I guess they'd call it a mountain. I'm from California. I'd call it a hill. And he took a wire down to town. And he pulled in all the off-air signals in the region. And so he could say, if you bought a television from him, you would get uh, Pittsburgh. I, I don't know how far you would, how far, much further you would get from his antenna, but you would get the off-air channel. And that is what made cable such a lucrative business. It was really very basic infrastructure, and all you had to do was get TV signals to people who bought TVs. But um, in the late 60s, uh, late 70s, um, there was this idea that, um, first of all, I guess the overwhelming idea was, the overarching idea was you could sell movies. And there was home box office, and Warner started their own movie channel. But these were subscription channels that the tapes got played back almost individually at each head end. That would be the part of the cable building where all the wires went out to the homes and all the signals were sent. Uh, even the you know the off-airing signals came in. Everything went out through the head end, and it it seemed like there could be some economics uh, some economics of scale that there could be satellites. And ultimately, when I went to work for Warner, which was in 1977, 
they had gone in, the whole industry had gone into this thing we called the franchise wars because the idea was to move into cities and to get franchises for big metro areas, uh, D.C., um, Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, any, any city you could think of, Los Angeles. Los Angeles didn't need cable. They had all the signals. But there had to be something to sell the cable. They also wanted to buy up little cable, mom-and-pop cable systems and make an agglomeration of them so that they could be operated more efficiently. So one of the things that you had to do was go to the city government and make proposals, and different companies were making proposals, so you had to have something to offer, something for the public good, besides the fact that what you really wanted to do was sell pay-per-view movies. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to sell many you had to sell them on the idea of many more channels and that you would do something interesting with them you'd have education you'd have children's programming you'd have a lot of public access which New York already had with some very weird sh wonderful shows but they were talking about city government you know you could go talk to the subscribers blah 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 one of the things that Warner wanted to do really seriously was maximize the income from all their all their assets, movies, records, uh, TV series, all kinds of things. The, um, and so they started putting together the idea for a multi-channel cable system, and by that it was huge at the time, 30 channels in Columbus, Ohio, and the reason they chose Columbus, Ohio is at that point, there was no internet. You didn't have people giving you information for free that they didn't know they were giving you about what their tastes were. You did focus groups, and you did them in the Midwest. You did them in the absolute average market, Columbus, Ohio. So ostensibly, that's the reason that Warner started Cube, uh, which is the name they chose with saying, well, it will be the thing, the way that Xerox became the thing. It meant nothing, but it would be the thing, ultimately. So that's why they did it in Columbus, Ohio. They had a system that they were ready to upgrade, and they came up with a plan for 30 channels. Included among them were one, two, I think, Five, I think it was five, definitely four education channels. And the people who were to develop the programming um, came from television. They came actually from the golden age of television. Um, and the head of the whole, the head of the whole creative effort was a guy named Michael Dan. Mike Dan had been um, the Fred, he had been the predecessor to Fred Silverman. Right, I've heard of him. I've actually heard of him. Yeah, very famous guy. And then there was a guy named Spencer Harrison, quite a gentleman who had been, I believe, CBS. And he was in a more he was in a slightly more corporate position, and he was another advisor. 
Well, for the education, Mike Dan brought in Dr. Vivian Horner, who was my boss, ultimately. And Vivian Horner was brought in because she'd been at uh, public television, and she was the chief of research for Electric Company, which meant she did all the eye movement research for where to put things on the screen for people to look at and what, how much you needed to get some, a child to look at something. And there was this notion that pervaded all the, the programming that we did for specifically for Cincinnati, the, I guess what I would call the pro bono programming, the community programming, was that if people wanted the information, you didn't need big pro production values. You didn't need to wrest them away from everything else that looked like what you were putting on. So um, there was an emphasis on live programming, and it was interactive. You could play game shows from your living room with people in the studio. And there was, um, and then there was educational television. And the notion, they wanted something that would be like Sesame Street, but not Sesame Street. They wanted something for preschoolers. They wanted something for really young kids. Uh, because they knew Vivian, you know, said the television is going to be on. Children are going to watch it. Um, and she said, but so let's make it a safe place for children to watch television. And uh, unbelievably, originally um, uh, Nickelodeon was on for three hours a day. <laughs> during the hours when we thought it was appropriate for children to watch right. television or else it was, or it's, you know, maybe it started at 10 o'clock in the morning and went till six or seven. It turned off at different times. I, I don't remember specifically, although Vivian Wood remembers very specifically, but it, the whole idea was it's on when children should be watching, could be watching television as it not necessarily should be but it was off when they shouldn't be. And one of the, so they did Nickelode they did the production of Nickelodeon which was just the street. It was just it was it was it was the little town just like um uh, just like Sesame Street. Right, right. But they also then said what else have we got? And Vivian had a group of people who were really uh we were really we were really funny. We were that we. Some of us had never been in television. Some of us just were addicts. And one of the things they came up, and I will get to the comics, but they came up with a pro a prototype for MTV. Um, wow. We tried. We wanted to get. It was. It was like a. It was patterned. The original pilot looked like you were at Fillmore West. And it had the oil and, and food coloring in a dish and projected onto the walls oh, okay. and stirred right. around. I mean, it was, it was an antique kind of thing. So uh, one of the assets that Warner had was, uh, is, still is, DC Comics. And they right. were really go we were really going everywhere. Uh, we were going 
to the TV guys, to the old movie guys, everywhere. But nobody knew what to do with DC Comics except Vivian. And she said, let's put comics, let's just get some art, some, you know, some comic strips, some books. She didn't really know what she was just talking about. But then, but she'd met Jeanette Kahn, who had just started working. And she was, she was head of DC Comics. She right, was the right. first female division headed. At Warner and Jeanette is a very enthusiastic people person, and Vivian was. They had all this original art in a room, just the ink. And Jeanette said, "You can have everything, anything you want, except you know Superman, Batman, all, all that. You know the big guys." And there were only a couple of big guys at the time, but. Um, and they were they were the usual suspects, and she said, just you know, she let me sit on the floor. She had me in, and Larry Hama and I. Oh wow! I didn't know Larry Hama was involved in this. That's fantastic. Well, he wasn't really involved, but he was a friend of mine. Okay. I, I okay. knew I knew him from working on a Broadway show called Pacific Overtures. Wow. Where they of were course. trying to, sure yeah. They were trying to find any Asian actor who could stand on a stage. There were just not very many. And that's how I met Larry because I worked for the stage managers. And so I went down there and he started pulling out stuff and we made a selection and I said, I need stuff for little kids. And he said, well, you need sugar and spice. Shelly (laughs) Shelly Mayer is one of the greats. Yep. And he, he was one of the greats. And so just pulled out all the 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 big sheets that are tabloid size that are inked just right, the original black and artwork, white. right yeah all the original art and then they, somebody um made copies of it and it was colored hand colored and those that was mounted on cards and that is what was shot wow. so that 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 was so simple and the idea was that you just, as just as you remember it, you pan the camera across, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you go at a diagonal to the next line and pan the camera across. In time, it turned out to a soundtrack, which we recorded. I I was the producer. I did this. I produced. I produced and directed the audio. Um, I got them all started, and then um, I got. I came up with the opening with the ride of the Valkyrie, the bicycle going down to the corner store, because when I used to walk home from Los Feliz Elementary School in L.A., we would all stop at Jack Back's Pharmacy. If we had a nickel, we'd buy some candy, and we'd look at the comic books and then put them back on the racks. And I thought, well, you know, this is the thing. This is what you do. And the um, and so um, that is what um, John Cornell, um, who was the video director, and you know you sit in a booth and you call the cameras and you make sure everything goes the way it should, and that's what John did. He panned the cam- had the 
he synced it all up to the audio, and that was it. So wow. we went to, I mean, I had a great time doing the audio for all of this. I, the guy um, who, you have the opening of Hawkman, the guy who did that was named William Hamilton. He was quite a voiceover guy, unbelievably professional. We recorded on eight tracks, you know, reel to reel. And he could do multiple voices and he would, he'd read, uh, I didn't give them scripts. I gave them copies of the, copies of the art. So he would read a, a page of frames, and if he was doing three or four other voices on that page, he would lay down one voice with space in between, and then he would record him doing the second and third and fourth voices. Okay. Sometimes there were henchmen. And he could do that. He, he, he got it so it all overlapped like a conversation, which... Um, you actually can hear in Hawkman, maybe not in the part you have, but certainly in um, Swamp Thing, yes. where there were more, th or there were more than three guys. Yes. Well, if yes. there were three guys, two of them were Bill, and if there were more, all the rest were Bill. Um, <laughs> the guy, the other guy in that was a guy named Charles Picard, and he did a show on late night television. That was sort of an inner sanctum kind of scary movie show, and so and he had a very youth he had he had the more youthful voice and he only did one voice for us. He uh, he uh, he he would do a hero for okay, us, right? And Bill would do everything else, and it was really amazing. And then when we got to Sugar and Spike, and I'm really embarrassed that I can't remember the guy's name. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> it's 40 years ago, Dana. I mean, I don't know why you would be expected to remember all that. Well, but I can remember the young woman's name. She was just, they were great together. Her name was Diane Disk, D-I-S-Q-U-E. I mean, I remember them because they were, everyone was so much fun to work with. So we would record everything. And it actually looked like we were, when you drove up to the recording studio, it looked like you were in the middle of the country because at that time, within... The circumnavigating interstate highway that surrounds Columbus, there was actually forest in the city limits. And so we would go to this place and then um, we would record things. And then I'd sit there with the, with the sound engineers and uh, we would pick all the sound effects from his library and then we would do the sound effects tracks. Right. And it was a lot of fun. So that's kind of the story. Um, there was there were just a lot of people having a good time. All right, now do you ask wanna... me another question. Yes. Well, I want to wind back to something you said about where you said Jeanette Kahn said, you know, you can have everything except like the big guys, except Superman or Batman. Now, that seems counterintuitive. Like you would think that. Why were Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman presumably off limits? You would think that that would be the big draw, would be the big marquee characters. Well, because I'm sure that they were the marquee. Uh, undoubtedly, everyone knew they were the marquee characters, and then would come 
the rest of them that make up the the super the, the core superheroes and that there would there was TV first of all at that right. time right that man was Superman on TV. movie had just come out right yeah and so you you didn't want to you didn't want to mess with that what you wanted to do was look at the ancillary characters the minor ones the the ones that weren't um the ones that nobody really knew about. Right. They weren't household uh, names like The Flash or Adam Strange or, or whatever. Right. And you would uh, and you would just you would want to maximize the brand by by developing new and not and not and not uh, muddying the water for future licensing. Licensing for cable was very different than than it is now. So I'll give you an example. I went to the public. There were other channels I programmed. And I went to the public television library in L'Enfant Plaza in Washington, D.C. And they brought me, and they, I, there was a list. And I said, can I see this, 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 and this? They brought me all of Doctor Who. Wow. And uh, up and you know, which had which had gone, it had gone all the way to the end, no reboot in sight, and uh, I actually thought I was going to be being called because for a while the only place you could see Doctor Who, which we got for free, was in <laughs> wow. Cincinnati, Ohio, starting with episode one. My goodness! Oh, all the Doctor yeah. Who fans and that are listening to this are going Tom insane. Baker. Yeah, the, the people I, I had fan mail for doing this. I'm sure. Uh, the other things that you that I could get were um, <laughs> things I could get something called Wally's Workshop, and from from I think that came from what was called at the time Modern Talking Pictures. When I was a kid, and you were in school, you would there would be a, a some afternoon. You'd, everybody they'd pull down all the shades in the in the classroom, and the projector would be reeled in, and you'd see a movie. What you would see would be an indus what we call an industrial. It was about something produced by a for profit company. And but it was informational and taught you something, but it also increased your awareness of, for example, Tabasco sauce. <laughs> that was one I remember because there was this whole thing about it was a movie about Avery Island, which is where all the peppers were grown. And so it was about it was an agricultural movie. This is what we make in the United States. This is one of the things we make. It, it could have been about airplanes. It could have been from Boeing. It could have been about sugar. Like traffic how traffic, sugar traffic safety or something. Yeah, it could have been, um, you know, it, it wasn't it, it wasn't the perils of marijuana. <laughs> you right. know, it was, <laughs> it, was, it, it was fun stuff, and, and you would learn something. I was, you know, we were in, we were in elementary school when we saw it. So... So to get those, those used to get sent all over the country on reels, 
and you would uh, you'd have one sh- you'd have one show. Everybody, you know, in the auditorium or at the you know at the uh, Fraternal Order of Eagles or wherever, and you'd pay a fee. So you paid every time it was shown, and I we couldn't do that. It would mount up because we were playing everything, including video comics, including finally everything that got done for Nickelodeon. Pinwheel was the Sesame Street kind of show um, in all the time slots throughout the day. So Wally's Workshop, which was about carpentering, would it would play in every time over a period of a month it would play in every time slot there was on that channel a couple of times but because we could tell how many were watch people were watching each time i could go to the distributor and say okay we'll pay you for one exhibition and we will send you the exact, and, but we're going to play it throughout the month, and we will give you the total number of viewers for each month, because that's what the companies wanted. It didn't. It was. It really didn't cost modern, modern talking pictures anything. They got their. They got their fee for the, for the reel or the tape or whatever they sent us. But the cus. But the the actual client. Their actual client, which in this would have been the Tabasco in, in the case I gave you, got to know precisely how many people saw it over the entire month. That's what they wanted. So that is how we negotiated the contract, which was very – was revolutionary at the time. So, you know, it was – because we gave them what, what they wanted on a format in a, in a, in a medium that they had never been in. Okay. Right. That was, uh, the, yeah. I mean, that's why that's when, when I first discovered the show in like 1980, when we finally got cable that like, I, I grew up never having seen comic books in any other medium. I mean, they did movies and TV, but then that was, that was a different thing, but for someone to literally take the comic book and just put it on a TV screen, it just blew my mind. I just never believed that comic books would be given almost like that kind of level of respect, that it was like, well, we're not going to try and adapt it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're not going to try and turn it into this other thing. We're just going to show yeah. you the artwork. And it was, for someone that worshipped the medium like I did, even at that young an age, it was unbelievable that you would just show panels of, like, Carmen Infantino artwork unmolested. Like, you just... There it is on the screen, and that, that's when I, I when I discovered the show. It was just like I couldn't believe I'm seeing this, and I just gobbled it up as much as I could find it. Well, the thing Vivian said was, you know, it's not a big deal when you sit down and read a child a story at night. You stand, you sit there next to them with the book, and you read the words, and they look at the pictures, and eventually they start following along with the words. Right. And that's how I learned to read. I learned to read on Scuppers the Sailor Dog. <laughs> and that was just because my I made my dad read it to me, I don't know how many times. And then I would sit, because I'd memorized it, and read it. And that's what kids do. That was the whole, for, for I mean, it's kind of interesting, the, the idea that 
all you really need is the book and and to use it the way kids do. Um, now, of course, kids with comic books generally can read a little bit, although kids do learn to read from comic books because it's frequently more interesting than what they were told to read in school. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And so that the the notion that if someone wants it enough, you don't have to do a lot, and the respect for what the initial product is uh, per- pervaded a lot of what we did at uh, at Cube. The idea that really all you you could have a whole show if you could if you could figure out a way to get Michael Nesmith interested because he was the first person really doing uh, music videos. Right, he was a pioneer in that. You could just have a whole show of music videos. What a concept. Mm -hmm. I got music videos from uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company. Um, They had, I I got a couple of half hours. The one I remember the best was the Hoyt Axton one. It was just his voice and and footage that someone had it was very lovely footage of cities and things but not acting out but it was the music and it was a really nice video and people loved it you you could do that you could do that sort of thing and and the reason they <laughs> and and the other reason they did it all that way is because it was cheap there is right. nothing less <laughs> There is nothing less expensive to produce until we get into the last two or three decades. I mean, the reason there were so many talk shows was because they were cheap. Right, right. At the same time um, that we were, we had a morning show. It wasn't, we weren't competing with, uh, oh, CBS, NBC, and ABC. But we had a talk show every morning, and it was just local people coming on and being interviewed. And it was entirely local. And it was very popular. When we did the teen, the teen, some of the teen shows that became part of um, the music channel, uh, VM, uh, you, you know what I mean. MTV. MTV, thank you. I was going to say VMI. That's something entirely different. Um, Kids stormed to the studio. They sat in the audience. They loved it. They watched it. They were on TV. So this was like when you went to, um, when I was a kid and we watched, what's his name, who always does uh, New Year's? Dick Clark. Dick Clark. Dick Clark, yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, it was recorded in L.A. or wherever it was, and and those were local kids. They could see themselves, and then he had a group of kids who were always there. Uh, That happened on a local level in Cincinnati. TV was, our TV was kind of like 50s TV. And so so that's why we were doing things like uh, video comics. Right. We weren't asking you to put a 
piece of plastic on your TV set and draw it on top of a cathode ray tube the way they did in the 50s with one TV show. But, you know, it was pretty basic. So uh, you mentioned that Jeanette Kahn wanted kind of the, the secondary characters to be the focus. Was Is that because she sort of saw it as more of a promotion of the DC brand than specific characters? Because I remember the show featured the DC logo like at the end of the show. And that's, that, was, that was kind of ahead of its time. I mean, to, to kind of push yeah. DC as a brand. I mean, Marvel now is a brand. Everybody knows the Marvel movies are a brand. Yeah. But DC, so that's really, that was her mind. That was her mindset was like, okay, we don't need to promote Superman, but we could use some promotion for Flash and Sugar and Spike and I, stuff like but that. I, I, think it, I think it was... I, Jeanette is a is a very brilliant woman and very I mean, very funny and very and very sharp and I'm sure that yes she had all those thoughts but really she was saying okay let's let's just get this out there and we'll just make and 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 yes DC is a brand I don't we think of branding in an entirely different way yeah. than people did in 1978. Brands were brands. You just get the logo out there. But, and, and this stuff was doing nothing. Nobody was, nobody was interested in Sugar and Spike. Right. Nobody yeah. was interested in Hawkman. Nobody, well, every, there were a few people interested in Swamp Thing, but there weren't very, there wasn't much Swamp Thing to be interested in at that time. Right. Um, the, uh, and I just had, as we were talking, I was just thinking, oh, my God, what have we been able to work with Will Eisner? Yeah, oh, man. Wouldn't that have been unbelievable. <laughs> the video comics but, of the spirit. Yeah, well, that was that was one of the things, though, that, that when I discovered the show was this was before comic book stores were. There were comic book stores, but I didn't know of any at that age. And so when a comic book went off sale on the newsstand, it was gone forever, ostensibly. I just never saw it. And so... I was coming to this show, and you, your show introduced me to Sugar and Spike. I had never known what that was, and I had never known well, what Ultra the Multi-Alien was. And these became favorite characters of mine, and it was only through your show that I later – then, then when they would appear in a comic book you know, 10 years down the line when stuff started getting reprinted more, I was like, oh, that, that's this. That's this thing. And so it was amazing. You, you your show was expanding the DC Universe to me in a way that could not have been done – any other way because that stuff just wasn't available. Well, and the, it's true. And the people who in the who actually worked in the industry, Larry had an office at Continuity Studios, which right. was Neil Adams' right. studio, and Russ Heath, little Annie Fanny, he had a he had a desk there. Uh, but Larry was what we what we saw in comics at that time. Um, were Larry Hama and Ralph Reese did, uh, they did nitty gritty, dirty comics, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, you'd sit around there and one day a guy all dressed in white came in with the most amazing, uh, inked original art of scenes from the Lord of the Rings. That was Michael Golden. I, it was just, oh, wow. I mean, he, and he, he didn't have any money. So we all dug deep in our pockets. We didn't have any money. And I, re, and I bought what's in his pockets for $200. I mean, that was a huge amount of money then. Right. And, you know, Larry bought, I think he has the fellowship in a 
this sort of splash page. But it, everybody added up some money to get Michael some money so he could stay in New York and, and draw because he was incredible. Uh, and then there were the old timers that you'd run into, Wally Wood. I mean, everybody had, everybody knew what was great. Everybody knew what was great who was making the art. Everybody knew Shelley Mayer was great. Everybody, you, everybody recognized that Michael was going to be a talent. Uh, everybody was sympathetic when Bobby London got sued. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all these things, but nobody else knew. And you're right about that. Who would know? Because things disappeared. And then comics were very outre at the time. There were the, uh, the you know the comics that had Geiger's stuff in it. It was all. It went through a phase of just being more out there than a kid would want. Because I don't know. I don't know. That just was the mood of the country. That was the mood. That was the zeitgeist then. Right. Well, sp- but I mean, then, go ahead. Now speaking of out there, I do want to ask you about because I mean you would do Sugar and Spike, which was obviously at the at the far end of. Kitty comics uh, in a good way, and then you did Swamp Thing, and which is much more for you know an older kid. I mean, how did you? I'm amazed, like the range of that that you would go from Sugar and Spike on one end and Swamp Thing to the other. Like, how did you? Who decided what books to do? I like, did. First of all, you did. Okay. I just decided. I just decided of the things that I was looking at. I think Larry probably said you should do Hawkman. Because I maybe because he just liked the word arquebus. I don't know. <laughs> um, but you know, Hawkman did have a lot of thugs in it. I mean, it, it was kind of fun to do. Uh, no, I just decided, and I just loved Swamp Thing. And I thought, oh yes, let's have a heartbeat under everything. Let's have mush in the swamp. Let's have all that. So I just wanted to do the sound for it. Did you, uh, did you did you pick a character and then go to Larry and say what would be a good book to do front for that character, or did it work the other way? Or did you say, oh, this was no, a good story? There, no, no, there was a closet. There was a room outside the closet. We'd just go in and get things and sit on the floor and look at them. Oh, my God. And, and then <laughs> ask permission and say, is this okay for us to use? And I, whoever it was... I don't know. Maybe it was Denny O'Neill, but somebody said, "Yes, you can have that," or they or they gave us a list and said, "You can have any of these." But we, you know, we didn't know what would happen, so we took a bunch, we did them. That was enough. That was enough for the company. They didn't want any. Not not DC. That was enough for Warner Cable. They had enough. They were franchising. They showed this stuff. Uh, and all the all these things, and then it was done. It was done. It was over. So, what? Because, as I said, the real goal was to sell pay per view. Right. Um, boxing, comedy specials, uh, music specials. We produced those. We ourselves at Cube did not. Someone else was brought in to do that. And they did them other places. The other thing they wanted to do was have shopping on TV. Uh, <laughs> that you would buy things. I mean, it's it's it was it was what we do now. 
there was this notion that if you were watching the, the pinnacle of TV would be you're watching a show, you want a pizza, you um, order it and it's delivered while you're watching the show, you do that from the cable box. And we would always look at whoever was saying that, this, a few of us would look at them and said, say, you can do that now. And unless you find a more efficient way than doing it on your telephone, it's not worth doing. <laughs> you know? Wow. But now, I mean, I mean, three years ago, four years ago, there was finally a commercial where people were watching television and they all ordered pizza a different way involving some form of, phone, you know, cell phone, laptop. It was a cell phone, a laptop, and maybe it was, maybe there was something. Oh, it was the Internet on your TV. Okay. And I saw it and I said, okay, the goal has been reached. Right. That was Mecca. Yep. That, that was, was Mecca at the time. Um, so they wanted to sell clothing and appliances and all kinds of things, and they had a group, whole group of people working on that, particularly in Pittsburgh, when we started franchising in Pittsburgh. And guess where all those people went after the franchi franchising period was over, when it was clear we really wouldn't be able to do that? Uh, in a way that was effective at the time, because we, you know, uh, we could sell. They all went to home. I'll just finish that. They all went to Home Shopping Network. Of course. Uh, of course, and they and they and they created it and ran it. Uh, but when I say it was interactive television, and we could tell who was we. We, we never assigned a name, but we could tell what people were watching. It was a signal that went out from the head end and came back every 15 seconds. It would pull all the terminals, and it would take 15 seconds. So how long is 15 seconds today? Right. 15 yeah, seconds is like an hour. Yeah. So if that was the bandwidth you had... And that was the speed at which you could do it. And it would slow down as your systems got larger. You weren't really going to be able to do that pizza thing. You weren't really going to be able to do that. Let's go through, um, let's drive our car down the street thing that you can't go on. Right. Yeah, and that is an. It it was not long after the beginning of Cube that we. I was back in New York, and a friend of mine was working with Steve Mayer, who had been one of the first five at Atari and was on a no compete contract. And he he and he would take he would just go see anything that he wanted to see, and find a way and see if it was going to be useful to Warner. So we went up to Columbia and sat with two guys who only ate and drank orange food and <laughs> for two hours while we tried to get them 
to make the first two moves in Dungeons and Dragons. You try to figure it. But of course, you could do that on a computer with no pictures at the time. And uh, I forget what it was called, but it was, you know, you would just type in walk three steps forward. Right, sure, and sure, the, sure. And there were no pictures, but just your cursor. Right, it was just um, typing instructions or whatever, yeah. yeah. Treasure hunt or something, you know, it was, it was called something stupid like that. <laughs> he went out, Steve uh, took my colleague out to Utah and went to a guy named Hari Suri, C-S-U-R-I, I think, his lab. And this was, okay, so we're in 1980 at this point, or 81 or two, but not a whole lot, not too far, sort of right around there. He, You could sit in a chair in his lab, and you could drive down the street because he had DOD funding. A lot of what we... You know, a lot of a lot of things that we have in our lives, like desktop scanners, were all DoD development. But it, but it was we weren't there. We couldn't do a when we started. We couldn't do a class on uh, on Incan ruins and have you walk through it like. Palenque, which Bank Street College then did 10 years later, still with rudimentary stuff, because there still wasn't enough. Uh, the computers were not that powerful at home, right, and right. and the ones that were were in huge bunkers. Um, the uh, There wasn't enough bandwidth. Um, it's, it's just, you know, things are... Things make great leaps forward when <laughs> speed is amplified, when band- bandwidth is broadened. You, know, you get huge jumps, but it's 10, 15 years in between at right. the time we were doing it. Now right. it's yearly. Right, yeah. So when I was nine years old and I was sitting there watching, you know, an Adam Strange episode of video comics, like there was a ping every 15 seconds going back to somebody reporting that, yeah. you know, this address at 1108 Harold Place was <laughs> was watching this show because that's so there was somebody paying attention to that when they were because and there Lord was somebody knows, paying attention to that. They weren't they weren't keeping they could have kept that information, but also our our capabilities were pretty minor. At that point, they could have kept the information of the demographic information, but okay. they didn't. They really wanted your, they needed your terminal name and address okay. when you bought a movie on pay per view. Oh, I see. Okay. Or when, and yeah, and so there were 10 pay per view channels. Right. And they could, you could, uh, in my department, the education department, we had a consultant who did um, video classes with someone signing in a little corner, and students could participate by pressing buttons on their terminals. And that was based on what had been done in Reston, Virginia, uh, a few years earlier, they wired Reston, and they could do interactive classes. 
Hmm. So we we had I don't I don't think the the SATs were interactive, but we had things with the community college that were. Okay. That never. There's no need for that now. Right. 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 You've got your computer. Right. So yeah. So there's no need. It was a. It was a technology. It's. It is a technology that is really pretty outmoded running a cable anywhere. Right. So when you, you talked about going to the D.C. offices and going through all the artwork and stuff, so was the show produced in New York or was it produced in no, California? No, we did it in the studios in Cincinnati. Oh, in Cincinnati. Uh, we, okay, wow. I'm not Yeah, not Cincinnati. Sorry, Columbus. Oh, Columbus. Okay, all right. In Columbus. There was no reason to produce it in New York. Everything was produced in Columbus. Okay. It was much less expensive. We had the staff anyway because we were doing live television every day. We had three studios uh, we, that were operating most of the time, and uh, it was a different, I mean, it was a different world. I did a show with somebody from marketing and sales where we would sit down at a table on Friday with a list of things uh, and say, okay, this is what I'm going to be watching this weekend. And have it was like it was like point counterpoint argue. I was argue, always arguing for the drive-in movies, and Bobby was always arguing for something cultural. And then at the end of it, we would do to um, one uh, to we would do what we called the sports role, which was every single sports event that was going to be on TV on cube that you couldn't get anywhere else because. It was never covered in TV Guide. It was not, TV Guide did not start covering what was on cable until a few years later. Right, and, I that. yeah. And that was a way to sell. That was, it was fun to do that show. Um, but, and, and it would be replayed throughout the weekend. But there really was no way to know what was going to be on the Madison Square Garden channel, what was going to be on all these other sports channels that came in over the air from other cities and then went out on cable. You know, we would get them. They would come into the head end and we could shoot them out. This is what made this is what made Ted Turner. Right, right, right. You know, and so that cable made he, you know, there was a poster there where he was sitting with his cowboy boots and said, I was, I was cool before cable was cool, so, and we were working before cable was cool. You know? So when you were doing this, you were doing the show in Columbus. So the actors that you were talking about, the Diane—they're all from Columbus. They were yeah. all, so they were all local actors. Yeah, we 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 okay. we we shop local. Okay. <laughs> okay. We were. It was the, that was the whole point. So when the kids came in, they were coming in from the high school, the junior highs and the high schools in in Columbus. Um, the talent, many of whom are now superannuated off um, MTV, but they they moved from the shows in Columbus once the satellite division got going to MTV National. And all the VJs that we started with, and the any number of people went on to 
actually pretty big careers at the time, but kids today wouldn't know who they are because mm. they were 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. We are talking about something that was actually 40 years ago. Right, much. right, right, right. So the, so, the, 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 um, oh, the newsstand, the, that whole opening, that's all shot in Columbus? Like that was a local newsstand and, and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Local kid actors? Okay. <laughs> Imagine us with the kid on the bicycle. I mean, we didn't have a lot of stuff with the camera in a car. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And I, I'm not even sure we blocked off the street for that. Wow! <laughs> I mean, and then can... we just went. Yeah, I mean, we went into the we went into the place where the rack was, and we just stood there and spun it. <laughs> well, I, I always assumed that you had to rig that because, of course, on the on the rack, it's all DC Comics, and and that would not have yeah. been the case. It would, there would have been Marvels and Archies and Harvey. So I imagine you had to pull all those and just fill it with yeah. whatever DCs you could get your hands on. And the kid that you saw from behind drawing the opening to Sugar and Spice. Right. That's Jim Jenkins, who started um, Doug. Really? Doug, yes. He drew Doug. And Brad Gunther, who produced that with him, was one of the uh, puppeteers and uh, masterminds behind... um, Pinwheel. Um, wow. And, so, and they, that, that's, that's what, but Jim was just an assistant, and I, we needed somebody who looked like they were drawing, and of course Jim could draw. Right, right, right. And so we shot over his shoulder in the studio, and he was drawing. So oh, that, my you goodness. Know, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people came out of there. That's uh, amazing. It was really a lot of fun. Did you yeah. get did you get feedback from DC at any point during the production of the of the show? Did you did you ever you know, like, no. like oh that's a great one that one uh, not so much or they didn't really care? I don't no they didn't care. They okay. did they really didn't care. They they everything was fine with them. I mean I never heard anything from Vivian saying oh they didn't like. I mean it was their product. They were confident right. in their product. Right. And stuff that they had published. So obviously they were okay with it. It wasn't like you were you know, grabbing something that wasn't meant for public consumption. It had already been consumed by the public. Exactly. And it, it wasn't going to get re, it wasn't going to be anything but leftovers, except that <laughs> suddenly there are so many outlets for product that everything becomes fodder for uh, the new media. Right. Well, that, you know. that that leads me to something I did want to ask you about. But before I get to that, I do want to ask, did you get feedback from kids the like kids right in did you, did you did you know at any point that people were enjoying like were there were you able to assess the ratings and it was like oh these flash episodes did better than the sugar and spike episodes or the swamp things did better than nutsy squirrel or whatever like did you have any idea about that point or was it just you just produced them and you put them on we just produced them and we put them on and we never heard from kids except about doctor who Okay. And that was not kids. That was that was older teenagers. Right, and, right. Okay. And adults. But okay. No, we didn't actually what we heard from parents which changed how pinwheel uh and the other things that we bought for uh that for kids uh oh, there was something for infants. Catherine Smithram. Anyway, uh the thing that changed when those things played was mothers writing in or calling in and talking to customer service and saying, 
please put these things on longer Mm -hmm. because I need them (laughs) (laughs) and I like them for my kids, but I need, I need, I need a, I need them while I'm cooking dinner. I need them while I'm getting the other kids out to breakfast. I need uh, out to school. I need, I need these shows. My kids come home from school at this time. I would like it on now. So that was the kind of feedback that we would get on okay. all of this. On things we sold, like the SAT prep and um, other courses from Columbus Tech, um, obviously the feedback was the purchase because people bought them. Okay. So they paid money. They'd get a notebook. They would get the ancillary material sent to them, and then they would follow the course. And they'd take the test, and they'd have uh, they'd have credit. Okay. So you would get you would get feedback that way. That really, and in terms of a corporation, that's the feedback that matters. The feedback uh, to the educational stuff was good feelings when you went in to talk about what you were going to do for a community with Warner Cable. Okay. Why did the I mean, show it's really that simple? Why did it? Why did it stop? Why did it only ran for two years? I mean, was it always prescribed to just run a certain number of episodes and that would be it, or was it? Was there another reason for why it stopped? No, I think. Well, let's see. Probably because it was identified with the educational programming. Warner developed had developed created a satellite unit, a satellite program service unit. Nickelodeon, they took the things that they wanted, and they wanted what became Nickelodeon. They, want, they wanted uh, Pinwheel and Nickelodeon and that. They wanted the teen shows, uh, and they didn't want, I, I, I mean, why would they want video comics? Hmm. They were going after a national audience. They were going in competition with other big cable companies. Um, they, and then you need, and because you're in competition with like, with things that are like you, you need more production values or you need something catchier. Okay. Video, yeah, you, the market changed it. The market was not Columbus, Ohio anymore, which was where they would bring everyone to see what we would be able to do for their city. Okay. The other cities. It was the, um, it was where you saw the model train, you know? Uh, So, all right. So the idea of like just reading a comic book on a television screen just seemed a little old fashioned pretty quickly once it developed. Cause I mean, obviously, you know, you look at the early MTV videos and they're, they're pretty hinky looking and then, but it it didn't take, I mean, just three years later you had thriller. I mean, the, the, the development right. of the form was lightning fast. So I guess video comics just seemed a little old-fashioned pretty quickly. Uh, so that was the I idea. Th- well, I th- yes. And, and the people who ran – the people, the executives who were brought in and the, talent, the producers uh, who moved from Nickelodeon uh, – from Pinwheel to Nickelodeon, when it became Nickelodeon, or to MTV, they had a very different outlet look on things, and they were they knew what they were competing with was not 
you know, was not other companies franchising. And their backgrounds were different, their points of view. I mean, it was really a very, it was a moment in time when you could do anything you wanted. Um, we, we had a show that you could call in, and if you had a problem with your cable system, we would try to fix it for you. <laughs> and, wow. And, and, and uh, Ron Castell, who was the VP in, of uh, marketing, hosted it, and for a couple of, for a week he was out of town. And myself and Carol Kite and I sat there um, in an empty studio on some bleachers, and people called in, and we would answer questions. And one night, someone called in and said, so the adult movies, are they edited? (laughs) And we never talked about adult movies because X-rated movies were banned in Hamilton County, Ohio. These were not X-rated. They had been. <laughs> so the answer to I looked at Carol. Carol looked at me. And at the, almost the same time, we looked straight at the camera and said, yes, they are. <laughs> and there were about 15 people watching that show. And then when we were done, there was a long conversation about the X-rated movies. <laughs> And we would ask people questions, and they would vote. <laughs> I mean, we, we we had no script for this. We went from like fifteen or twenty people watching that show to hundreds. And this was not a a fully wired system at that time. You know, we we got a we went to six or seven hundred people in the course of five minutes. Now. I'll tell you why that was. It was a push-button system. If you were in commercial on something, you surfed. And it was the first tracking of surfing oh, phenomenon. Boy. Wow. And, that, and so, you know, you're now, so extrapolate that to a national market. You're in competition with people who can surf. Right. And so the whole picture changes. What we found out overall from all the research coming in, and it has not changed, is that with 30 channels, most people had three to five channels they watched most of the time. And that has not changed. Well, it hadn't changed as of five or six years ago when I read something. Mm-hmm. We are, you know, you've, how many times have you sat down at your TV and said, there's nothing to watch? Right. 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 I, and, I subscribe and, and to is, 17 there, streaming there no services and I can't find watch. things. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we even did a, we, we did something that the sports guys had always wanted to do. We did a college football game. Was it college? It must have been. It was no. It must have been high school. College probably wouldn't have let us do this. Anyway, we did a we did a, a student football game. Maybe it was college, with no play by play. Oh, where you just ran the game? We 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 did the game with all the cameras. I mean, you know, there are cameras everywhere. We had the van there with the mixer. Um, 
we had, there was no color, no color. It, I don't I don't even remember if there was a commentary. There was sound. There was the sound on the field. Right. There may have been the sound from over the from over the um, you know the stadium sound, but there was no color commentary from us. Who on earth would do that? Right. <laughs> right. That's just crazy. Not just now. Reading comic books on television. It's, it does, it's very exactly. Strange. It was just a time. It was a time right. that 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 you know. I can say I miss it, but there are a lot of good benefits. I'm watching. I'm watching uh, a show on Netflix about agents for movie movie stars, and I'm practicing my French while I'm watching it. You know, right. couldn't do that then. Right. I love that show. <laughs> Well, I mean, hey, if you if you if they started doing video comics today, I would watch it. I would just find it so entertaining just to see these books on a big screen with the nice bright color, even with all the million other things. And that was something else that I wanted to ask you about. And it may not be anything you can answer because, of course, you've had a long career and you you moved on to a thousand other projects. But like I, one of the things that's so fascinating to me about video comics is that it so completely disappeared. And I mean, pre-internet, I really thought I was, I thought I made it up in my head. I was like, oh, that, that, no, I'm remembering because I can't find any information on the show. And then I, then when the internet came about, I found that there's an IMDb listing for the show and it does list a couple of actors and it mentions you. But other than that, there's not any info. And on YouTube, you can find virtually anything, anything that's know, ever been on television. <laughs> you can, you know, you're like, oh, you know what? I think I saw a commercial about orange juice that had a guy in it that had a dog, and you can plug that into YouTube, and somebody's uploaded it. But yet, all these episodes of video comics, two years worth of video comics, there's one episode. That's it, and I don't understand why. Okay, the here, show is just so completely falling off the face of the earth. <laughs> Here's my promise to you. First of all, all those tapes were on beta. Okay. Uh, VHS became the system. Right, right. Uh, here's my pro- and here's my promise to you. I had tapes. <gasps> I, had the, I had a friend who went to a system uh, in, outside of Seattle. I think it was in Seattle. And... He made copies for me. Oh boy! Of some of them. Okay, I have moved five times since then. <laughs> Somewhere in a box, there may actually be CDs of them. Oh, don't tease me! And should Dana. I ever find one? But don't hold me to this. I will send it to you. Oh, Dana, please! You've said it on a podcast now. That's legally binding. You have to do this. I am not going to rest it. until I find these shows. I have to see. I have to see the Sugar and Spike shows. I have to see the Ultra the Multi Alien shows. I, this is. It just it drives me nuts that when I've tried to point the show out to people, the only example I can give them is Swamp Thing. Now, luckily, that's a great episode. Like that's one of the best ones you ever did because it's you were. It's one of the best comics ever done. But. Yeah. Still, it's just so it, – I, I just can't believe that considering how much TV was recorded uh, in the wild that this thing – especially this thing with these marquee characters now. I mean people know who Swamp Thing is. People know who Hawkman is. People know who The Flash is, that those things have not bubbled up to the surface. So what I am hoping, aside from just the pleasure of getting to talk to you, getting to tell you how important this show was to me in, in my – 
in a two pronged way in that it was it, it helped goose my fandom for the medium, but it also helped me learn to read because as you mentioned early on, if Batman used the phrase modus operandi, I would look that up. I wanted to know what that meant because if Batman said it, it must have been important. You know, mm-hmm. I don't care about the dumb pushcart war for school. I cared about, you know, the flash running at 186,000 miles per second, which is the speed of light. So I am hoping that this show will disseminate out into the wider internet and get people that might have it somewhere, or have recorded it somewhere, and get it posted. Because I just think this was – this show I think was so ahead of its time. It may have been old school in the, te- in the way you did it. But to me, it was still way out of its time. And I really think that if people just knew it was out there, they would love it. And so I am hoping other people that hear this maybe say, oh, you know, I think I have a tape somewhere and, and post it. I would love that. But if well, you have those I CDs, oh, please. Too. I really do. It was fun. But, you know, um, things also get thrown away. Yeah, Studios yeah. throw things away. Yeah, yeah. Nobody was ever going to look at this again. Those tapes took up a room. Right, you know that right. that happens. Uh, things get stolen. I had some original Sugar and Spike art on my <gasps> office in my office at at the Warner at the at an ancillary Warner building in New York. It went away and it was gone. Oh, I came my, back. Oh. It wasn't there anymore. Oh, I was my. I was I mean it was my favorite. It was my favorite stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I was just about to ask you, what were your favorite episodes? Were your Sugar and Spikes probably your favorite of the shows that you did? Definitely Swamp Thing. I think professionally, for the work that the actors did, uh, all the other things that you're talking about, I mean, Bill Hamilton really was phenomenal uh, to work with. It gave me a real I had no idea what voiceover people really could do until right. I met and worked with him. But I think Sugar and Spike were my favorite because the two actors had so much fun doing it, mm-hmm. and they were just so inventive. Um, those and and they're charming, and even Neil Gaiman loves them. Mm-hmm. Loves Everybody loves Spike. Sugar and Spike. They're great. They're some of the best comics ever done. And there were I, I don't. We didn't do any other funny. We didn't do funny animals, did we? According uh, to IMDb, you did Nutsy Squirrel, which was a DC yes, we character. did Nutsy Squirrel. That's right. Right. Yeah, um, I got to see these, and, Dana. Can I come over? I'll, I'll go through your house and look for it. I don't. You don't need to do it. I'll come over. I can. I can fly out there. I can handle that. I would love to. I. I this is. This is like my life's goal now is to find these episodes of video comics. Well, you, if you give me a year, I, w- I will have gone through every box, and I may actually find them. All right. Uh, I'm going to hold you to that. This episode's going to go up on January 20th, 2019, so you have until <laughs> January 20th, 2020, Dana. That's, that's, that's the th- you, 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 you gave yourself a deadline, so I'm going to hold you to it. And I will be, I will be mortified if I can't find them. I, I will okay. tell you that. I will be right. mortified because I always say one day I'll look at these and I want my grandchildren to know what I did. <laughs> well, you should because I am, I, 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 I said this on the intro to the show that, you know, through the podcasts that I've done over the years, uh, I have had the good fortune to talk to a great many people uh, to who uh, I deeply respect. It's actors and writers and film directors and things stuff like that. And it, it, it's all been wonderful opportunities for me. But in a lot of ways, this I, the, my, the chance I'm having to talk to you has been the most rewarding because I really thought that this show just 
disappeared off the face of the earth, and I never thought I would ever get a chance to tell anybody how much I love it. And so I am so happy I got a chance to talk to you, and I'm so appreciative that you responded because I could imagine you getting this email from some nerd talking about something you did 40 years ago. I mean, I looked at your your CV on your website. You've done 40 million other things since then. Um, I'm so grateful that you listed it on your resume. That, you know, I was like, wow. So I – I don't want to use up any more of your time, but it's like I just want to say I, I thank you so much for doing this because, again, I thank you for the show. It was a huge part of my fandom, and it, it helped form the person that I became and a lover of this medium. And so it was just so great to get a chance to talk to you and, and be able to tell you, you know, sort of in person, how much your work meant to me. The show was deeply loved by at least one kid in, in New Jersey. When you get to be my age. <laughs> I'm almost there. And somebody, No, you're not. And somebody remembers you and something you did, you will know how gratified I feel. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you, Dana. This was just tremendous. So um, we're going to have a link to your website on our show notes, danacaddison.com. Everybody can see all the other crazy, amazing stuff that you do. You do a lot. You multi Renaissance woman. You have many, many talents. And so, like I said, this was just tremendous. I really appreciate it. And like I said, get, get going. You have a year. To find uh, okay, you know, and uh, I better make sure that website is still functioning well. <laughs> it's still, okay. it was the, when I checked it out the other day, it was still it was still working, so everything is good. So, uh, again, Dana, thank you so much. This was just tremendous. I really, really appreciate this. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. On the bayou, mournful darkness gives way to desolate dawn. A solitary figure stands watching. Who is this misshapen creature, this muck-encrusted mockery of a man? Visions tumble through the dark corridors of his mind, of Dr. Alec Holland, the man he once was, of his lovely wife, Dr. Linda Holland, partner in research, co-worker in constructing a bio-restorative formula, a formula so secret, so significant, it could cause men to kill. Visions of the flaming explosion, fiery chemicals seeping through fragile flesh, driving the burning man-form into the soothing ooze of the swamp. He has become a hideous monster, reborn from the slimy bogs, hunted, haunted, doomed forever to be swamp thing. (laughs) 